Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 30th, 2016, we talk with Israeli Navy veteran Omri Bezalel, now a World Policy Journal staffer, about his recent blog post on the plight and protests of Israel's Ethiopian Jews. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ winter issue, cover line interrupted, with a unique perspective provided entirely by female editors, experts, and journalists. But first, some top news of the week. Warnings of tit-for-tat nuclear weapons escalation by Russian President Vladimir Putin and U.S. President-elect Donald Trump faded. But the Obama administration was preparing for retaliation for what it deems Russian hacking to help Trump win. Moscow, in turn, warned Washington against increasing military aid to rebels in Syria, both as a danger to Russian troops and to a new ceasefire and peace talks plan hatched after discussions in Moscow with Turkey and Iran. The U.S. was not invited. In Congress, there was bipartisan intent to counter Obama's decision not to veto a unanimous U.N. Security Council vote condemning continued expansion of Israeli settlements in Palestinian areas, possibly including a cut in U.S. funds to the U.N. Secretary of State Kerry denied orchestrating that vote and argued passionately for the fading two-state solution. Trump, who tried to block the U.N. vote, was pressed to support Israel as president by quickly moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But some experts warned this would inflame Arab populations and undermine cooperation against ISIS across the Middle East and Europe. Meanwhile, China, still concerned about Trump ties to Taiwan, sailed its only aircraft carry and accompanying warships into the contested South China Sea, where it's building large anti-aircraft systems on artificial islands, according to recent satellite imagery. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I feel sad on one hand because Sunday's protest deteriorated into violence against the police and against civilians. I do support the demonstration. I am with them. I hope it will be understood that the Ethiopian community is part of Israeli society. Damas Pakada, an ethnic Ethiopian in the Israeli army, as translated by Euronews. An unprovoked attack on him by two policemen in the city of Halon led first to peaceful demonstrations in nearby Tel Aviv, then to violence in May of last year. The cops were quickly reported to be dismissed, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with the young victim, declaring, I was shocked and we cannot accept this. But more than a year later, and roughly a quarter century after Israel arranged sanctuary for more than 56,000 Ethiopian Jews, a painful, prejudicial, second-class citizenship persists for too many of them and their growing black community. Israeli Navy veteran Omri Bezalel, now a World Policy Journal staffer, examines this challenge to Israelis, black and white, in a recent World Policy blog post headlined, Bring Me the Ethiopian Jews. And we discussed it for this podcast. Omri Bezalel, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hi, thank you. Who gave the order to bring Ethiopian Jews to Israel, and what circumstances led up to it? 
Uh, well, I think when Jews have existed for about 2,500 years, and throughout the generations they'd wanted to come to Jerusalem, and many tried in the 19th century and failed. And uh, there was a line of emperors in Ethiopia who believed themselves to be Jewish and descendants of Solomon. And Israel, from its creation, uh, tried to have good relations with non-Arab Muslim countries, and Ethiopia was among them. And there was a military coup in Ethiopia in 1975, and Mengistu took over, uh, which led to the end of the Solomonic dynasty and also led to war with Somalia later and the Great Famine. Um, and in the meantime, in Israel, the chief rabbinate didn't acknowledge Ethiopian Jews as Jews, and so the right of return didn't apply. And despite that, dozens of Ethiopian Jews came to Israel in the 1950s as tourists and stayed. And by the 1970s, there were about 300 of them in Israel. And, uh, and in 1974, the matter came before religious leader Ovadia Yosef, and he dug into it and found that there had been Jews there in the 17th century. And that's when he officially declared Ethiopian Jews to, in fact, be Jewish. And then the law of return applied. And uh, Menachem Begin took office as prime minister in 1977, and he called the head of Mossad into his office, and that's when he said the famous line, I want you to bring me the Ethiopian Jews to Israel, bring me the Ethiopian Jews. And... Um, and at this point, Israel, the military in Mossad had met with Mengistu in Ethiopia, and they had made a deal to bring to Ethiopia planes full of supplies. And in return, once the supplies were taken off the plane, Ethiopian Jews would come on the plane, and that's how they would get Ethiopian Jews to Israel. Um, but unfortunately, once... Uh once this leaked to the press, uh, it backed Mengistu into a corner because his communist allies weren't happy about it, and he called, called the whole thing off, and he severed all ties with Israel. And that's when there became a real need to get creative and find a way to bring the Ethiopian Jews to Israel, and that led to Operations Moses and Solomon, which were the two big operations in the 1980s and early 90s that brought most of the Ethiopian Jews to Israel. And how did they accomplish that? So it's, uh, I mean, it's a pretty amazing story. It's Mossad and uh, and the Shayetet, it's the um, naval commando equivalent of the Navy SEALs here in the U.S. They came to Sudan and they opened up a club med as a cover, and. Uh, and meanwhile, Ethiopians were coming uh, were coming by foot uh, into Sudan, you know, 500 miles away, and and so the operatives uh, in Sudan, the Israeli operatives were. You know, they were running this club med. They were teaching tourists how to scuba dive by day and then smuggling out the Ethiopians at night. And at first it was with the Israeli Navy. The, um, the gunboats were sailing to the shore there, and they were um, bringing the Ethiopians back. And later on, you know, they were improvising runways, uh, and Hercules planes were landing in the middle of nowhere there and taking Ethiopians back that way. And, uh, and they spent a lo um, many years there doing that. It was clearly a humanitarian high point in Israel's history, but followed, you say, immediately by a failure to integrate the Ethiopians into society at large. Talk about the demographic uh, statistics underscoring the scale of this calamity uh, as it exists today. Uh, well, there are about 140,000 Ethiopians living in Israel. About 60% of them were born in Ethiopia, and 40% were born in Israel to Ethiopia-born parents. 65% uh, of Ethiopian children live in poverty. And even with two or more family members working, four times as many Ethiopians live in poverty than other Jewish Israelis. And uh, even though they only rep represent 3% of the general Israeli children population, one-fifth of Ethiopian Israeli children are incarcerated in juvenile detention. 
detention centers. Um, motivation to enlist into the military is really high among Ethiopians. Um, 90% of Israeli-born Ethiopians enlist, which is an extraordinarily high number. Um, and 40% of them into combat, but still only about... Um, uh, 20% of Ethiopian soldiers still don't finish their full service, and one in five Israeli Ethiopian soldiers, which is five times the number of the general population, are jailed during their military service. And you can also see it in the workforce, where you have only 2% of Ethiopians working in academia, and you only have about one in 3,000 uh, who practice law. And, um, and so it's uh, pretty apparent when you look at the numbers. And you cite surveys in 2012 and 2013 that dramatize continuing social attitudes that connect with the plight of the Ethiopian-Israeli community. Yes, uh, a, two, a 2013 Ministry of Finance survey asked employers which demographic they most preferred hiring, and Ethiopians came in last. I mean, after women, people aged over 45, people with disabilities, immigrants from the former USSR, Orthodox Jews, and Arabs, they came in last. And the 2012 survey said that less than half of non-immigrant Israelis would want their children to be in the same classroom with Ethiopians. Only a quarter would want to have Ethiopians as their neighbor or their children to marry an Ethiopian. You cite the recollections of the first Ethiopian elected to Israel's parliament, the Knesset. First tell us who he is, where he came from, uh, why, and how he got to Israel. Well, his name is Adisu Masala. Uh, he has a fascinating story. He was born in a northern district in Ethiopia called Gondor, uh, where most of the Ethiopian Jews lived. He went to a Jewish elementary school, funded by Jewish donors, by the way, uh, especially from the U.S. and the U.K. And right after he finished high school, there was the military coup I mentioned before, and the communist regime didn't really fit their ideology. So him along with, it was mostly university and high school students, they created an underground resistance movement called the Ethiopian People Party. Uh, and they fought the communist regime. And Adiso had a long-time dream passed down from his parents and the spiritual leaders of his village of coming to Israel. And he decided then that it was time. And he made that journey, that 500-mile journey. He walked to Sudan, and he seeked asylum there. He spent a year in refugee camps. And while he was there, he heard that a group of Jews managed to get to Israel through Sudan. And that's around that time is when the Mossad came and the and the naval commando, and like I said, when they opened up the Club Med, and, uh, and Adisu helped them with that for a year. And then he made his way to Greece and then to Eilat in Israel, and that was in 1980. He remembers segregation starting uh, almost at the time of arrival. Say more about how it began and developed. Well, when they arrived, Ethiopians were put in permanent public housing, but you know, prospering neighborhoods didn't really want these projects because they feared they would uh, lead to property devaluation. And so there was a real fight between cities and mayors as to who will take them. Um, and obviously the so-called losers were the ones who, um, you know, would take them. And it ended up being that it's, it were the neighborhoods lower on the socioeconomic scale that were forced to take in the newcomers. And what that led to was um, that the non-Ethiopian residents soon left, and it really just left the Ethiopian community isolated from the rest of Israeli society. You also uh, report the complaints of uh, an Ethiopian Jewish woman who arrived in 1984 at age three and has particular criticism of the Israeli education system for her people. Who was she and what did she say? 
She's Penina Tamano Shata, a remarkable woman, also born in Ethiopia, like you said, came uh, with Operation Moses with her family in 1984. Uh, she's a lawyer. She was very active over the years in trying to bring out and stop discrimination against Ethiopians, and in 2013 became the first Ethiopian woman elected into the Knesset. And, um, and so she was telling me how throughout her years at school when she was a kid, even though she excelled, she was routinely taken out of class to attend reinforcement lessons with other Ethiopian children children and it seems to have had a big effect on her and she was telling me how she sees the separatism starting with this basic misperception that Ethiopians are weaker and you know and this is still the thinking that's a result of um, of an older generation uh, who were um, you know came to Israel with little or no education and in her experience educators tend to project this view onto students who end up being tracked down these special educational programs that might not necessarily fit their skills or ability and that in the end isolate them in um, uh, in, this, uh, in an environment that hinders their development and integration with Israeli society. And, you know, it's this kind of separation that leads to the isolation, hostility, frustration, and the increasing differences between Ethiopian children and other uh, students and, other, and their peers. Other discriminatory policies in 1985 and 1996 led to demonstrations in those years as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, Masale was, um, he organized, uh, he was involved with both of these uh, protests. One was in 1985 when the chief rabbinate of Israel decreed that all Ethiopians had to go through strict conversion, uh, which is something only reserved in cases when someone's Jewishness is in question. So in essence, you know, they were just... Um, you know, they were questioning whether Ethiopians were Jewish in the first place. Um, and in Masala and the Ethiopian community, they protested for 32 days in front of the chief rabbinate in Jerusalem until the decree was dismissed. And then in 1996, the community found out that the blood bank was throwing away all blood donated by Ethiopian Israelis. And Masala organized the largest protest so far. There was 20,000 people then uh, outside the prime minister's office in Jerusalem. And he was telling me how it just made the community feel like an entire ethnicity was being disqualified and turning into a group that's endangered in the public. Um, this has changed a little bit. In 2007, uh, they changed it so that Ethiopian Israelis born in Israel can donate. Um, but Pnina, uh, who I spoke about before, she in 2013 tried to give blood at a station outside the Knesset and they wouldn't let her. And she surfaced this again and raised awareness. And everyone from President Paris to the Minister of Health condemned it. Uh, but it remains to be seen. You report there have been other advances in recent years, notably in government policy and positions. Give us some examples. Yeah, there's definitely been advances. Uh, two Ethiopian-Israeli female judges were recently appointed to the bench, and the Prime Minister signed uh, a policy this year stating that the Ethiopian National Project has to spend its $130 million annual budget on programs that promote integration, not segregation. Uh, last year, a few governmental agencies started an initiative of roundtable discussions to formulate new policies, and the, Ethiop the Ethiopian community is becoming more involved in the decision-making process, and there are many people in and outside of government who are working toward further improvements. Talk about that, you touched on this, the generational difference among Israel's Ethiopian Jews in response to ongoing discrimination. Far more activism now. 
Yeah, Pnina uh, was telling me how the older generation had a long-time dream of coming to Israel. And, you know, and you can see it even when uh, when Masali tells me how uh, he received it from his parents. And and it's very uh, from generations before. And and so they had this dream. And then once it happened, you know, they were they were content. Um and they were content with with the dream coming true, but you know mostly m- most of them didn't speak the language. They came from a different culture. They were less educated, and all of which, by the way, like I said, fueled the Israeli perception of Ethiopians that lasts until today. And and the older generation, they were too busy surviving. And the younger generation is made up of Israelis, plain and simple, you know, people who were born and raised in Israel, and. Um, and who speak the language, they're part of the culture, they're educated, and they're much less passive than the older generation. And as Penina said, you know, they're fighting for their place within Israeli society and really navigating this um, this divide between, uh, you know, Zionism and love of country and the, the blows that they absorb based on their skin color. And social media must have an impact both on awareness and response, or at least organizing response, especially among the young. Sure. Well, you mentioned the video of Damas Pakada, the Ethiopian-Israeli soldier who was beaten by the police, and it was a devastating video, and like you said, led to the massive protest last year that unfortunately resulted, uh, resorted to violence in the end, and, and you know, this video before social media would have been... Um yeah, it wouldn't have gone, uh, wouldn't been able to go viral as it had and, uh, and reach as many people. Uh, I don't think, by the way, it's specific to Israel. Social media has been a huge part of all social movements in recent years. And there was also an Israel investigative journalism piece at the beginning of the year where a reporter had hidden cameras and she placed three young Ethiopian Israelis on a bench in a prominent wealthy neighborhood at night. And within minutes, I think, two police cars came and questioned them and they were about to put them in the squad car before the journalist came out. Uh, but it was very eye-opening, and obviously social media helps to spread not just cell phone footage, but also good journalism um, like that was. And so there's definitely more awareness today, both in the Ethiopian community and outside of it. There also has been help uh, from outside in the form of overseas donations earmarked specifically to help the Ethiopian community, but some activists argue that actually works against its integration. How and what better alternatives have been proposed? A lot of the money coming from Jewish donors in the U.S. and elsewhere outside Israel uh, is specifically earmarked for the Ethiopian community, and yeah, and this happens out of true concern. I mean, not, uh, it, it happens from out of really good intentions, but earmarking the money in that way has created a lot of segregation. For instance, uh, some of the money was supposed to be used to help Ethiopian students, so they used the money to create extracurricular reinforcement lessons for Ethiopian students in school, which uh, makes sense and sounds like a great idea. But Ethiopian students aren't the only ones who need help and reinforcement lessons. So what happens is that they take all the Ethiopian kids and put them in this Ethiopian-only classroom, um, telling them that they need special help. And so you have to think what the message is that these kids are getting. Uh, So a better solution is to use the money to help all Israeli students and create reinforcement lessons for any student who needs it. Uh, And then... Yeah, and then it's not Ethiopian-only class. Or instead of using the money to build Ethiopian youth centers, uh, which again segregates the Ethiopian youth, you know, rather use the money to buy vouchers for Ethiopian youth to use at community centers with the other neighborhood kids. Um, yeah, so so that's uh, so those are examples of you know of of how to use the budget to uh, integrate and not segregate.
On the other hand, some activists call for a special office in charge of all Ethiopian-Israeli matters. What do you see as the advantages and disadvantages, especially with integration in mind? Uh, again, with integration in mind, um, I mean, there have been a lot of both government and civil society programs over the years that have tried to close the gap between the Ethiopian community and the Israeli society. Um, and like I said, the problem with most of these programs uh, and initiatives, according to members of the community, is the overlapping between the organizations, lack of involvement of the Ethiopian community, and which also leads to money not being funneled efficiently. Um, a big point of contention, for instance, is the fact that the Ministry of Aliyah and Immigrant Absorption is still in charge of setting policy for Ethiopian Israelis. And if you look at the Arab sector, for instance, uh, it's the office of the Prime Minister that's in charge of its financial development. So when you have a community where more than 40% aren't immigrants and then do Aliyah, um, you know, the immigration of Jews from the diaspora to Israel, um, since they were born in Israel, then that becomes a problem because, again, it comes down to the message you're sending that you still see this community as immigrants. Um, so, so, yeah, so the thinking that there should be one authority not having to do with immigration that's in charge of setting and regulating policy and distributing funds and also publicity efforts that can inform a public that, for the most part, doesn't really know neither the history nor the culture of this community um, seems like it might be helpful. In the United States, close connections developed between Jews and blacks before and after the civil rights movement, in part because I think both groups saw themselves as outsiders and victims of prejudice. Do you see some irony in the fact that Israeli Jews, very much in charge, seem far less sympathetic to blacks even when they share the same religion? Well, to be honest, I don't... I think those are very different things. Uh, I think that once there's a Jewish state, Jews stop perceiving or at least identifying themselves strictly as Jewish, uh, but more as Israelis and Israeli civilians who happen to be Jewish. And I'm speaking, by the way, uh, from my perspective as an Israeli, but I have to say that living in New York uh, for the past seven years, I've noticed that you know, sometimes you'll ask the question, you know, what are you, right? And Americans will mostly say American, Italian, Irish, uh, but Jews tend to answer Jewish. And if you ask me what I am, I identify chiefly as Israeli. And my Jewishness, by the way, is contextualized for me in my being Israeli. So all this is to say that I don't view the problem in Israel as Jews not being sympathetic um, to blacks, but rather as Israeli citizens who are somewhat racist and have a bias against blacks just as American citizens have the same kind of racism and biases, and uh, just like most people in most countries have biases against certain minorities. Um, I do see irony, though. I mean, to me, the irony in the situation is that, unlike other immigrant groups, Israel did so much to bring Ethiopians to Israel. Um, and and I served in the naval commandos. I served in the unit that um, that helped bring them in. And that's how I learned about the story, by the way. Uh, the people who were a part of that of those missions, they came to our base. They spoke to us about it. And, uh, and I only learned about this in 2007. And so I think, by the way, that's also a story that not many Israelis appreciate the lengths that Israel took to bring Ethiopians in. But for me personally... Um, 
you know, I feel because I was a part of that unit, I'm, I feel I'm also a part of that legacy. And to see what happened to that legacy, to see everything Israel did to achieve it and then completely drop the ball afterwards, I think that's what's painful about it. Um, you know, and I'm very optimistic about the situation. I do think things are getting better, but I also think it just goes to show that the challenge with most thing, things is what comes next. You know, whether it's the Ethiopian community in Israel or social movements around the world or wars, it's not about achieving the goal where the goal was just, you know, bring me the Ethiopian Jews, period. But the real challenge is what comes after. Omri Bezalel, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Israeli Navy veteran Omri Bezalel, now a World Policy Journal staffer, examined the plight and protests of Israel's Ethiopian community in a recent World Policy blog post headlined, Bring Me the Ethiopian Jews. After we spoke, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel's annual report saw hope in government acceptance of most recommendations by the Palmer Committee to fight racism toward Ethiopian Israelis. But actual budgeting and implementation remain to be seen, especially by police on the use of tasers, video documentation of some interrogations, and disciplinary action within the force and it was reported that more than 300 Ethiopian Israeli members of the military had refused reserve duty obligations until the civil rights of their community are truly respected. Featured in the new WPJ winter issue, Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, on the future of feminism in China, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will talk with one of the winter issue's two guest editors. She's Istanbul-based correspondent Lauren Bonn, co-founder of the Foreign Policy Interrupted Initiative to amplify women's voices in international affairs. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. Happy New Year. <laughs>